When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Samsung Canada and its mobile solutions offerings, curated specifically for micro merchants and small business owners. The company recently launched Samsung POS, a new payment acceptance solution allowing SMBs to accept contactless payments directly through Samsung Galaxy NFC-enabled devices, all without additional hardware. 2019 was a tough year for Canada's energy sector. So what should the industry expect in 2020? I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. For our first episode of the decade, we wanted to discuss some of the pressing issues facing Canada's oil and gas sector. Instability in the Middle East, limited pipeline capacity, and seemingly too much supply. Plus, there's an increased focus on reducing carbon emissions. How will the sector grapple with this major mindset shift? To discuss this, we're joined by Jackie Forrest, Senior Director at the ARC Energy Research Institute. Jackie is a leading researcher who has covered emerging trends in the energy industry for nearly 25 years. She also hosts the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. Jackie joined me by phone from Calgary. So I want to start today talking about the geopolitical developments that have already sort of set the tone for the energy sector this year, namely the tensions between the U.S. and Iran and what that could mean for oil supply in the Middle East. What are you watching for here? So it's, it's a very interesting market right now because on one hand, you have this geopolitical situation, which could uh, escalate. And historically, if you're following the oil markets, events like this would have resulted in $10 or even higher premium for the price of oil. But on the other side, we actually have a market that's fundamentally very well supplied. And so the market sort of looks at these events very differently as maybe they did historically. You know, there's a lot of spare capacity in OPEC. Iran has spare capacity. And on top of that, there's a lot of non-OPEC supply expected to come on this year. And so it just seems like the market's so well supplied that until you see a major outage, I don't think the markets are going to get too excited for too long. And when I mean a major outage, I mean like a major outage of oil infrastructure. That would mean we have less supply. Until you see that, I think you're going to see prices not rally too high. What do you think has changed? You know, in the past, this would have been a massive event that could have massively affected prices. And now there seems to be more supply to go around. What factors are involved there? Is it just people producing more when the prices hit their peak the last time around? Or what do you see as the reasoning behind that? Well, we've definitely moved uh, into an era of supply abundance, where before we were, I would describe, especially from that kind of mid 2000s to 2014, we were in an era of supply scarcity. And so the scarcity mindset is, oh, we can't afford to lose a barrel of oil. If there's any potential that we could, oil markets are concerned. Today, there's a view that there's abundant supply that, you know, if prices were to go up, we'd get more supply from the U.S. We have a lot of outside of the U.S., a lot of growth coming from non-OPEC countries. And so there's just this mindset of abundance that the market has that it just doesn't concern itself as much as it used to about threats to supply because there's a view that, that it's ample and plenty and there's lots of cheap supply just total different mindset from that period prior to 2014. 
that shift from scarcity to abundance. Obviously, when we're thinking about that shrug of, eh, we can get supply from somewhere, we've got to think, what does this mean for Alberta? If supply does wind up quite constrained in the Middle East, if prices do go up even marginally, how does Alberta react to this? Well, we definitely get the impact from higher prices. And so, like we're not going to be able to supply that outage, you know, or offset some of that supply directly because we don't have pipelines that get to international markets. But the impact will be on the price of oil and that will ripple across the world, including affecting prices here in Western Canada. And so the biggest direct impact will be an increase in the revenue and cash flow that comes from the industry. And that will benefit the producers, but it could also benefit the shareholders as well, because today many producers are shifting to not put all their money back into new supply growth, but shifting to give money back to shareholders. So it would definitely help the industry by putting it on a better footing, giving it more revenue and cash flow, making it more healthy while those higher prices last. Improving these companies' cash position is probably a very positive thing after the 2019 that a lot of Canadian energy companies had. I think it's pretty safe to say it was a pretty tough year for Alberta, dealing with its own problems with lack of pipeline capacity. The province, the provincial government curtailed oil production in order to try to ease some of that glut. But now it's easing up on those restrictions. What are you watching for here as Alberta sort of shifts back into that more free market mentality? Well, you know, it's funny, 2019 was kind of an interesting year. It definitely was difficult. A lot of policy uh, decisions that the industry didn't like very much uncertainty around these new pipeline projects. But there were actually some positives. From a revenue and cash flow perspective, it actually was a fairly good year. And the cash flow coming out of the industry wasn't that different than in the 2011 to 2013 period. And it may be surprising, but you know we actually had relatively strong prices. The differentials because of the government putting in that oil curtailment were actually fairly narrow. So the price difference between our crude and other crudes around the world was more narrow than it had been maybe the, especially the fourth quarter of 2018. So from that perspective, things were good. You know, as we look forward into 2020, I think that we are going to continue to see prices in Alberta that are managed by oil curtailment. And that's positive in that it will mean that the price differentials between Alberta and other places are not too wide and they're you know, close to where they theoretically should be. So that is really positive in terms of the new year. You know, the big thing that's changed, though, is relative to the amount of money we're making, we're not investing very much in new capital projects. And that's what is what made 2019 a difficult year in Alberta, because we saw about a 30% decrease in the drilling activity and oil and gas capital spending. And that has resulted in less jobs and employment in Alberta. And I don't think that's going to go away in 2020. Even if we continue to have strong prices, I think we're going to continue to see less economic activity associated with the money being made than, than we would have seen before. And, and part of that is because lack of takeaway capacity and pipes and uncertainty there. But a big part of it is because some of that money investors are demanding back. So don't spend all the money on new projects. I want to see some back directly to the investors. So for example, in dividends or share buybacks. It's interesting because it does seem like we're in an, an environment where energy companies could be making more cash, but they're reluctant to spend it, essentially. Yes. Like if you look at the oil sands industry, for instance, they spent only around $13 billion of capital, new capital spending in 2019. That's our estimate. And they were generating more than double that in terms of their cash flow. So only about half of the money they're making going to new capital projects. If you go back in time to that scarcity era, they would have spent all of their cash flow and more. Sometimes some years, 
you know, 1.5 times their cash flow. You know, at the same cash flow, uh, the industry is just generating a lot less economic activity. And that's been the biggest change here in Alberta. Obviously, that's resulted in a lot of challenges for people looking for work in Alberta, aside from the scarcity to abundance mentality, which has obviously caused some massive shifts, not only in Canada, but around the world. Why do you think this spending reluctance is still holding on there? Is it is it just that our product is essentially cheaper than the same product if it was dug up somewhere else? You know, I think the biggest reason is actually not unique to Alberta, is that because of this mindset change, people that invest in the equities of oil and gas companies, they no longer think that just by holding on to the stock that they're going to see an increase in the value of their investment. You know, in the old days, the scarcity era, you would buy an oil and gas stock and you would hold on to it and think, well, you know, the fundamentals are such, you know, back then, you know, China's going to grow forever in terms of their consumption. There isn't very many sources of crude oil. And the sources we have left are very expensive. Like we have to go to the Arctic. We have to go as far as the Canadian oil sands. So the price of oil is going to continue to increase over time. So all I need to do is hold on to this equity and it will increase its value over time because the commodity price will go up. Today, it's a totally different mindset. Many investors believe that oil price is going to stay in the mid-50s or, or even maybe below for as long as the foreseeable future, as long as they can see. And in that case, if you're going to buy an oil and gas stock, how are you going to get a return for holding that if you don't think the commodity price is going up? And so what they've said to oil and gas companies, if I'm going to own your stock, I need a real return for holding it. And so if the stock price isn't going to appreciate, you need to pay me a dividend or buy back shares or somehow create a return on my investment. And so what's happening around the world is oil and gas companies, you know, traditionally used to take all their cash flow and more and spend it on new projects so that they could grow their production and therefore grow the value of their companies as the oil price increased. Now, companies are starting to say, hey, you know, I need to stay flat. Investors aren't rewarding me for growing my production. And instead, don't spend all that money on new capital projects, put it back to the shareholders. And so that is the biggest reason that we're seeing a slowdown in the level of spending in Western Canada. The second reason, which is very important too, is that there's no opportunity to grow here. So that's what makes us unique to other jurisdictions. In other jurisdictions, they don't have constraints in terms of how are you going to get the crude oil in the market. Here in Western Canada, you know, we have a situation now where we have an oil curtailment on. So what's the motivation for you to invest capital and grow your production, you know, when physically there's just nowhere to grow? So that's the added complexity here in Alberta. Certainly the the challenge of getting the product to market has been one that I think was a, a big story of 2019 and will likely continue to be a big story in 2020. Obviously, the Trans Mountain Pipeline connecting Alberta to uh, BC, the attempts to uh, expand the size, expand the capacity of that pipeline are still facing significant opposition. At the beginning of the year, we've also had problems with the coastal gas link pipeline. This is connecting up from Fort St. John over to Kitimat, also facing some challenges getting built there due to local opposition to the projects. How do you think the industry is going to grapple this year with that entrenched opposition that, despite some movements from the federal government last year, doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime quickly? Okay, so I want to talk about this in terms of the new pipelines that you mentioned, the TMX and the Coastal Link, but also talk about uh, some changes in the takeaway capacity from Western Canada that aren't as high profile that are positive. So, okay, let's talk about the new pipeline. So Trans Mountain, you know, it's great news this year that it got the green light from the federal government. I do believe that the federal government will build this pipeline. 
the question may be just how long it's going to take. And it may, there may be delays because of court challenges, as we've already seen. There may be delays due to local opposition, like we're seeing with Coastal Link, that blockades uh, workers from working on the pipeline. So it may take longer than we think, but I ultimately believe the Trans Mountain Pipeline will be built. We've got the will of the Liberal government. They've been reelected. And I do expect during the course of the next four years, there will be a Trans Mountain Pipeline built from Western Canada. The big predictions of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think it's going to maybe happen right now. I think they're saying 2022 is possible. It may be delayed beyond that, but ultimately I think it will be built. And the coastal gas as well. I think there'll be delays. Obviously, we're losing time here in the construction because of the local opposition, but ultimately I think that will be built as well. The other good news is that we are expanding the existing pipelines out of Western Canada. In fact, in the second half of this year, over 200,000 barrels a day of new pipe capacity was announced just by debottlenecking and optimizing the existing pipes. And so, you know, we're getting some extra takeaway capacity that way. There's new capacity coming from crude by rail. And at the end of this year, we actually learned that a couple of new projects may go forward where they're actually going to make crude by rail even more efficient. They're going to take the diluent out and just put pure bitumen in the rail cars. And this is the the bitumen pucks type of thing, the making, essentially making the product way easier to transport. Well, making less of it. So the bitumen pucks is the idea that we would take the diluent out and make it, it's kind of like very thick bitumen then, and we'd put it in little yogurt containers and ship it to Asia. But this, these other new projects are basically taking out that diluent, making it a very thick product again, and putting in rail cars and basically reducing the, the volume that you have to transport by 30%. You know, the only reason we put that this diluent in is that the bitumen is so thick that it won't float a pipeline. So we add some light, almost like gasoline to it to thin it down so it can run in a pipeline. But but you don't need to do that if you're moving it by rail car. And so one of the things that, that's being done and announced these two projects is they're going to put in these units that will remove that light product that's not necessary for putting it in a rail car and move just pure bitumen in the rail car. So what's exciting about that is it is actually very competitive with pipelines in terms of the cost for transport, because now you're not moving a bunch of volume you don't really need. And so we're really not only growing our takeaway capacity from Western Canada, but we're diversifying, you know, moving it lots of different ways. And that will make Western Canada more resilient in the future because we're going to have, you know, we're not just waiting for one pipeline project to be built. We have multiple options for moving crude oil out of Western Canada. And ultimately, that's going to serve the industry well. Sounds like some creative solutions to what has been a really protracted problem, you know, not one and certainly not one that's going to be solved overnight. There's one thing I wanted to chat with you about as you were talking about the demand from investors. Investors are recognizing now that it's no longer the environment that, yeah, people want oil, you buy an oil company's stock, you're going to make some money. That's that's not exactly the reality anymore. So that is driving oil companies spending behavior. But one of the other demands we're seeing from investors are people that are more concerned with environmental social governance priorities, these ESG priorities. Some big pension players such as Norway's pension funds have decided to ditch assets like the ones in Alberta to invest instead in one ones that are less carbon intensive. I'm wondering if you're seeing energy companies responding to this and how much attention are these companies paying to this preference from some investors to have a more environmental focus? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because it's really a big deal. And it's not just here in uh, Western Canadian oil and gas producers. Around the world, we're seeing oil and gas producers 
respond to the demands of investors who say, you know, you actually have to be part of the solution here to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so we have companies that are committing to very ambitious targets around reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. There's also some pressure on other aspects, like you said, the governance and the social. But I would say the focus on the environmental, especially the greenhouse gas emissions, is the biggest one at this moment. And there's a narrative out there that Canada is one of the highest carbon sources of crude oil. Now, that may be true for some of the older projects, but some of the newer oil sands projects and the non-oil sands side of the industry, that is not true. And at the same time, the industry is innovating to reduce their emissions. And so this week, we also learned from Synovus, one of the larger oil and gas producers in the oil sands, that they have a ambitious goal of reducing their emissions by something like 30% between now and 2030 and getting to net zero GHG emissions by 2050. And they're not alone, actually. Uh, CNRL, which is Canada's largest oil and gas producer, committed uh, earlier this year to net zero. And so has Meg Energy, another oil sands producer. So, you know, our companies are going to contribute to solving the problem of reducing GHG emissions and also to help Canada meet its ambitious goals. You know, the Canadian government and I think Canadians as well, based on the election that happened earlier this year, they want to see a lower carbon future. There's a narrative out there that by having the oil and gas industry in this country, it's going to be impossible to meet these targets. And these ambitious targets by these leading oil and gas companies are saying to Canada, you know what? No, we can be part of the solution. We actually can reduce our emissions and contribute to Canada meeting these goals and maybe more than any other sector. So I was really excited to hear the news from Synovus. And I hope and I expect we'll actually see more announcements in the coming year of other oil and gas producers signing up for very ambitious goals as well. It does help with that changing of the narrative of improving the brand image that Alberta has been stuck with, that Alberta is trying to combat with an energy war room. We won't get into that, but I want to chat more about the moves by companies like Synovus. It it does seem a little, what, the oil companies are saying we're going to be zero emissions. I'm wondering, what you would say to people who hear that and feel quite skeptical about goals like that? Well, it's net zero emissions. First of all, I'll say that. So net really does matter. So if you're generating GHG emissions and producing oil and gas in Canada, you don't necessarily need to stop all of that, but you would need to offset it. And carbon capture storage is an amazing technology that Western Canada has a huge advantage of at. So you know we could see sequestering of some of the CO2. But I do think we'll see actual reductions as well as people move to more efficient processes, cleaner electricity. And so I think it'll be a combination of direct emission reductions as well as offsetting. You know, when people are skeptical about the oil and gas industry, I do think sometimes there's a double standard. You know, if the government of Canada signs up to net zero, even though realistically right now, I don't think they know how they're going to do it. You know, they're applauded. And by the way, 77 countries have signed up to net zero and many municipalities and and other types of companies. But when the oil and gas industry does it and they don't have an exact plan of how they're going to do it, people are skeptical. You know, I think that the leaders of these oil and gas companies, when they sign up to goals like this, they're, you know, CEOs of public companies. I think they truly intend to deliver on these goals. And I believe we have the technology, the innovation, the assets, like in Western Canada, because of the sedimentary base and the ability to inject CO2. Like, I do believe the technologies are there to get us there. Certainly, they are well positioned to actually make these choices to actually figure out how to spend the money that they are making in order 
order to invest in these types of technologies. You know, so having the leaders of these companies making those promises could actually make a big difference. It's this interesting question that it's this tension that Alberta has faced over the years, you know, of whether it's doing enough, it's not paying attention enough, it's fighting for the oil and gas industry, but feeling misunderstood by people around Canada. I'm wondering if you have seen a shift in the way carbon emissions are viewed in the province as these environmental priorities become more important, not just for the companies to as as they're doing business, but also for the public at large. For sure. If you had told me five years ago that there would be oil and gas producers in Canada saying that they were going to get to net zero emissions, I would have told you there's no way that would happen. You know, like think about the cap on oil sands emissions, which wasn't that many years ago. Maybe it was five years ago that that was announced. I was shocked by that, you know, that the industry would actually agree to a cap. Now, a few, several years later, they're saying, no, we're going to have zero emissions by 2050. And you know, we're going to significantly reduce our emissions, you know, like Sonoma was saying, by 30% by 2030. And by the way, Suncor has committed to a 30% reduction by 2030 as well. And so I truly believe that, you know, the narrative that Canada has these ambitious Paris targets, we want to reduce our emissions by 30% by 2030, and maybe even more, according to the Liberals platform that they want to even get more aggressive on the 2030 reductions, that the oil and gas industry can lead the country in those reductions. And the oil and gas industry matters. I mean, they make up 25% of all of the emissions in Canada. So if you start to get the oil and gas industry aggressively reducing emissions, it's going to uh, make a big contribution to Canada's goals in terms of the Paris Agreement. What do you think sparked the change? Is part of this to do with the the struggles Alberta has been having and they're looking for ways to attract more capital? Or well, what do you think sparked that shift in attitude? Well, I mean, part of it is the investors are, you know, voting and investors have a lot of sway here in terms of what companies do. But I think it's also a recognition that, you know, there's a lot of friction within Canada and even beyond, like look at the difficulties the industry has had in building pipelines in Canada and even in the United States. And that, you know, the carbon emissions of your barrel really do matter. And that in the future, if we're we're going to this low carbon world, I think not a lot of people doubt that anymore, then to be a supplier of the future, you're going to have to be low carbon. And so I think there's been a major mindset change that this isn't just uh, nice to have. It's necessary for this industry to thrive long into the future. And it's also necessary to reduce the friction that the industry faces, you know, with the rest of Canada and even with the United States. Clearly, the leadership is putting their money where their mouths are when it comes to making these, publicly stating these goals and needing to make the investments that follow. Last question for you. I want to gauge how optimistic are you about 2020 and the year to come? Well, I think it's going to be better than the last. And, and we just talked about 2019 being a difficult year. So for some people that might, uh, if it's only moderately better than 2019, it's still not great. But one thing is the oil price does look to like it will be stronger. We have this geopolitical premium right now for oil. OPEC has agreed to cut their production more next year or more this year. It's already this year. And so I think the price of oil is going to be fairly stable this year. Natural gas has really turned a corner in Western Canada and prices are looking a lot to be more stable than they have been for the last several years. And like I said, we have our Western Canadian export takeaway capacity improving and diversifying this year, even though we don't have have those big new pipelines like TMX, uh, we do think we're going to get quite a bit of incremental capacity through rail and additional capacity on the existing pipes. So, And as I said, Canadian producers are increasing their focus on reducing carbon emissions. So I'm optimistic that it'll be a better year. Capital spending will probably be fairly similar, but there'll be a lot of good things that happen, I think, in 2020. 
And hey, even incrementally better than bad is still incrementally better. Yeah, moving in the right direction. In the right direction, indeed. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. That was Jackie Forrest, Senior Director of the ARC Energy Research Institute and host of the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business and thank you to the Down to Business team. Music and production by Bryce Hall and editing by Yadula Hussain. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.